Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Our latest mini-series, Crypto for Institutions, is brought to you by anchor sponsor Coinbase and leading crypto service providers Chainalysis, Falcon X, MG Stover, and Bitwise. This four-part mini-series over the next two weeks is my attempt to learn alongside you about the growing interest from early mover institutions in introducing cryptocurrency exposure to their portfolios. With so much to learn, we focused on investing, the macro case, the path to entry, and investment strategies to pursue. My conversation with Chris Dixon in January is a nice add-on to this series and is replayed in the feed. For the best primer I've come across on this ecosystem, I highly recommend listening to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's three-part Hash Power miniseries on Invest Like the Best from 2017 and still highly relevant today. My special thanks go out to Coinbase Institutional for anchoring this miniseries and introducing me to some of the terrific guests that participate. Coinbase Prime is a leading prime brokerage for digital assets. Its custody and trading services come up repeatedly as a safe haven on-ramp to the digital world in these conversations. Visit prime.coinbase.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on today's show is Ari Paul, the co-founder and chief investment officer of Block Tower Capital, a crypto and blockchain investment firm he started alongside Matthew Getz in 2017 with backing from Andreessen Horowitz and Union Square Ventures. Ari started his career as a trader at Susquehanna International Group and later found his way to the University of Chicago Endowment as a portfolio manager, overseeing an internal hedge fund portfolio and assessing risk for the university's $8 billion endowment. Our conversation covers Ari's early lessons in trading, discovery of crypto at Chicago, obstacles for institutional participation, and launch of BlockTower as a result. We discuss active management in the crypto markets, research and trading, portfolio construction, opportunities in NFTs and gaming, risks, and the exciting landscape over the coming years. As you'll hear in these conversations, the infrastructure for institutions to participate in the space is firmly established and led by service providers whose names may be new to institutions. We're pleased that some of the leaders across research, trading, administration, and fund management have joined Coinbase in sponsoring this mini-series. 
You woke up Monday morning and 149,000 Bitcoin flowed into exchanges over the weekend. $7.5 billion worth of cryptocurrency is moving fast, and you don't know why. With Chainalysis Market Intel, you'd know this is only the seventh time ever that weekend inflows have surpassed 145,000 Bitcoin. You would also know that these large inflows are followed by price declines, and you'd be ready to trade. But you haven't subscribed yet, so you don't have this insight from Chainalysis Chief Economist Philip Gradwell. Don't be left behind. Subscribe today at Chainalysis.com slash allocators. FalconX is a leading crypto financial services company providing institutions trading, credit, and clearing across all major crypto pairs. Fortune 1000 companies, family offices, and asset managers turn to FalconX as a trusted partner in the cryptocurrency market. FalconX currently services over 250 institutions globally, and its backers include Axel, American Express, Coinbase Ventures, and Fidelity. Visit falconx.io to sign up and supercharge your crypto trading abilities. Since 2014, M.G. Stover has been the leading fund administrator for digital asset funds. With proprietary technology and dedicated teams focused on this asset class, M.G. Stover has proven expertise to streamline your crypto accounting and reporting needs. Give your investors peace of mind and go with the most trusted firm in crypto, M.G. Stover. The Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund, ticker BITW, is the first and largest publicly traded crypto index fund in the U.S. The fund is managed by Bitwise Asset Management, a leading provider of crypto funds based in San Francisco with over $1 billion in assets. BitW primarily holds Bitcoin and Ethereum today, along with smaller allocations to up-and-comers like DeFi assets. The index fund rebalances monthly to keep you on the right side of the fast-changing space. To learn more, search for ticker BITW or visit bitwiseinvestments.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Ari Paul in this fourth episode of Crypto for Institutions. While this episode concludes our current mini-series, we've just scratched the surface on crypto, blockchain protocols, and institutional engagement in the space. In the coming months, we'll dive deeper into the evolving ecosystem with more key participants and ideas. Ari, great to be here with you. Thank you for having me, Ted. Well, I know that you started your career as a trader, and I'd love to get an understanding of where that interest came from. As a college undergrad, I was a bit aimless. I thought I was going to do uh, biology or neuroscience first. I, was, I ended up as a poli-sci major. And really, the thing that grabbed me in college was poker. I played probably more hours of poker than I spent in class. And I had some friends who joined a firm called Susquehanna International Group that was founded by poker players. Part of the training was poker. And so it was presented to me as kind of, hey, if, if you like poker and you're not sure what else to do, this is poker 2.0. This is higher stakes, more sophisticated, more complex. And that was very appealing to me because at the end of the day, poker is a somewhat simple game and it doesn't make it easy, but it's simple in that call, raise, or fold. There's a, a finite number of permutations. Trading very much seemed like a more grown-up version of it and certainly can be played at much higher stakes. So yeah, it was a seamless transition to join a firm founded by poker players after spending so many hours as a poker player myself. So what was that training like? Susquehanna was known for its assistant trader training program. And they were so known for it that they would actually have you sign a contract when you joined that said it was a three-year non-compete when they put you through their training program. First, as an assistant trader, you're in this kind of after-work class. And then you get invited to join a market maker program, which is a solid two to three months where you're not working. They're paying you, but you're just in class all day. And the idea is you graduate from that and you're an options market maker. And as a 23 or 24 year old, you're given an immense amount of responsibility. You're running a book, basically 15 months out of college and potentially a very large book. So it was a really top-notch training program of market making. And as part of that, you would play something like hundred hours of poker. And literally it was just, you'd have 10 people to a table. We'd be playing hour after hour. Bill Chen, who was a world series of poker champion, was also a quant at Susquehanna. He kind of ran that program. And something they encouraged that I found fascinating was there were side bets. So there was actually a bulletin board where every person in the market maker program could bet 
on who they thought would win first, second, and third. And they encouraged it. You can imagine a lot of firms kind of discouraging side bets. They actually encouraged us to bet. I think they discouraged giant sums of money. They didn't want people using a year salary on it, but they were happy to see people betting a couple thousand dollars. And I think I learned as much from the side bets as I did from the poker. Actually, a quick anecdote on the poker game that I thought was a great like life lesson for me. The guy who won it, I knew he was going to win after playing three hours with him, even though he was not the first or second best player in the game. So he was a, a player who, in heads-up games, I would consistently beat. But he really excelled at exploitative play. So if I was against a really bad player, I might win three big bets an hour. And I might win one big bet an hour off him, but he would win eight big bets an hour from the bad player. So I was winning every session, but he was winning more than me every session. And there was kind of nothing I could do about it. And so it was, it was interesting to see. And, and I was able to make back that basically he won the tournament, but I bet on him to win. <laughs> so a good lesson there that I often apply thinking about trading, which is in poker, there's game theory, optimal play, and there's exploitative play. And the biggest winners are the ones who exploit. So how long did you stay at Susquehanna? I was there for four years. So it was a, a decent amount of time there. Trading was a very natural fit, a very natural extension of poker. I will say fairly early on, I realized that I didn't permanently want to be a trader. When the financial crisis hit, I was enthralled and fascinated by it. It was a moment of realization that Susquehanna really drilled in us this idea that we're smart young kids who don't know much about the assets we're trading, and humility is the most important thing. And it's funny talking about traders and humility because traders, by nature, you almost have to be a little bit arrogant to be a 24-year-old swinging tens of millions of dollars. There's kind of a natural arrogance there. But Susquehanna, the whole thing as a market maker is there's always someone who knows more than you, always. And your goal as a market maker is basically no one to get out of the way. If someone is willing to bet a billion dollars that you're wrong, it doesn't matter how good your model is, they might know something. And my favorite example of this, I traded crude oil futures at one point, and there were terrorists in Nigeria who would occasionally bid up crude oil and then blow up a pipeline. So however confident I am in the fair price of crude, it may be that the person betting against me is literally about to blow up a pipeline. They have better information than I do. That's markets. So when the financial crisis hit, it was a realization that, okay, there might be a lot of people in this industry who are far smarter than me, far more knowledgeable, far more experienced, but I see them making incredibly obvious mistakes. The way Wall Street priced real estate risk, for example, the way just a lot of mistakes that are not intellectual mistakes. And I spent a lot of time thinking about, man, why are all these really smart people with tons of skin in the game making such obvious errors? And my conclusion was it's structural. It's not that these people don't see it. It's that incentives are everything. Structure is everything. And the bureaucracy ends up dictating so much of market activity. So I learned the same when I then went to the UChicago endowment and saw the same thing from another angle, which is endowments in the financial crisis, all endowments think of themselves as perpetual life investors. They like to brag that they have the longest time preference of anyone that should yield higher returns. They get to be greedy when others are fearful. The reality was in the financial crisis, endowments and pensions were net sellers, not net buyers. They thought they would be net buyers, but they were net sellers because suddenly they realized we have an institution that requires annual cash flows from us. The average endowment pays out something like four or 5% to its institution. And if your endowment size falls by half, suddenly that four or 5% is now 10%. And if you're projecting forward returns, a general portfolio of sub 10%, that means you're going to destroy the endowment. So it was a gross realization that we may think of ourselves as perpetual life investors, but there are real world circumstances. And then the bureaucratic side, which is it's all well and good to say that the endowment has a permanent time preference, but does the CIO, does the board, does the present university, do the alumni, are the alumni okay taking a 60% drawdown, or are they going to start getting out the pitchforks? So in your time sitting at the University of Chicago Endowment, I know you started thinking about and researching Bitcoin and would love to hear your perspective at the time of what it was like looking at this new asset in an institution like that? At first, I had personally invested in Bitcoin in 2014, small size. I wasn't super convicted. It was almost a, a little bit of a plaything to me that it was intellectually interesting. I was trading it a little bit for fun. But at the time, it was a couple billion dollar market cap when I first invested. I didn't think of it as an asset class. By 2016, it was clear to me that this is an asset class. It is growing. There is something very real and substantive here. Basically, I gained conviction over time. And I started thinking about it for the endowment. 
before 2016, it almost didn't occur to me that this personal trade could be something an $8 billion endowment could allocate to. By 2016, Bitcoin was at $1.6 billion asset class, at least maybe it could be investable. And it was starting to get more institutional. You started having regulated fiat on ramps and regulated broker dealers and things like that. So I wasn't naive. I knew that there's no way any endowment is going to invest quickly. And my hope was maybe I can socialize this over time. Let me build an educational base. Maybe it's still a year away from investing, but if I can make that a year instead of 18 months, if I can have UChicago be one of the earliest institutions in, they're probably going to get in at a price 90% lower than their competitors. So I started doing that. I held educational seminars. I wasn't pushy. I actually didn't even say the endowment should be in. I said, hey, this is cool tech. It's a new asset. Anyone at the endowment who wants to hear an educational pitch, come join. Almost everyone at the endowment will come to those meetings because they were interested Almost immediately, probably a third of the Chicago endowment employees bought Bitcoin in 2016. By 2017, many owned Ethereum. And I started talking to people at other endowments, and I saw the same thing. A third to half of the endowment professionals were in it personally. And we were talking to each other. I would be talking to someone at MIT or at Yale or wherever. Hey, how do we get our institutions in this? And many of them didn't even seriously think about it in the near term. We all thought this is an incredible investment for our personal portfolios. But we knew we couldn't get our institutions in, which is such a weird gap. Like, I'm an investment professional. I see something I personally want to have more than a third of my net worth in, and yet it might not be appropriate for the endowment. How does that work? And the answer for all of us, we knew it wasn't about riskiness or appropriateness or anything like that. It was pure bureaucracy. We understood the psychology that a CIO has to answer to a board and it's kind of investment by veto to some degree at the highest level, which is to say the way endowments typically work is you have an investment team that has a huge amount of discretion about what they invest in, but at the absolute highest level, allocation decisions have to be okayed by the board. And so one key thing of how this plays out is the first crypto investments by the endowment world were in VC startups investing in the crypto space because that didn't require board approval. It was just another VC fund. A16Z, every endowment was in their earlier funds. When A16 launched a crypto fund, they didn't have to pitch it to their board. It's just another fintech fund. So that was an easy, whereas a direct allocation of Bitcoin, that requires a board discussion, board approval. It was frankly a little painful to watch because I saw the opportunity. I was personally getting enriched from it and I wanted the institution to benefit, but you kind of saw how the bureaucracy gets in the way. Alongside of your interest in trying to educate the people of Chicago, Bitcoin, I know you spent a lot of time on the risk side. And I'm curious, before we kind of dive into the crypto ecosystem, what did you learn about risk in a pool of capital like that? I'm a geek about risk. I'm not really a quant, but I've played that role to some degree at UChicago. My title at UChicago was Portfolio Manager and Risk Specialist. And my view on risk has always been that risk is inseparable from return, that the idea of segregating the risk function from portfolio management is nonsensical. There's actually a discussion that I sometimes have with prospective investors in Block Tower where they'll say, oh, do you have a separate risk manager? And my view is that you can have a junior risk manager, which basically just means a quant. It's a quantitative analyst who runs data for you and presents them to the portfolio manager. That's great. But the idea of having a separate person be the risk manager who isn't the most senior investment professional makes no sense to me because that's the single most important thing. So my view is that risk management and portfolio management are truly inseparable, that you want the most senior, most talented investment professional to be running risk in basically any book. So Bitcoin, not that much has changed in five years. It is a mature asset. It is a little bit less volatile. It is still a young, hyper-volatile, hyper-risky asset. My view from the beginning is the realized volatility is very high. The forward-looking volatility is very high. There's also existential risk. This is maybe debatable today, but I think it certainly could go to zero, as most assets in the world can. So how does that fit into a portfolio? Well, this isn't really new or complex. When we think about portfolio construction, there's two variables that matter, the correlation of the rest of your portfolio and expected return. If you think that Bitcoin has a higher expected return than any other large asset or asset class in your portfolio, and its correlation is less than one, that means it should be a big position. How big you then need to get into the numbers. So Bitcoin in 2017, my view is it was the highest EV asset I could find in the world, certainly of one with a multi-billion dollar market cap. And its correlation... Generally, it's run somewhere between 10 and 40% to equities. And 
U.S. equities or global equities are the biggest risk factor in any endowment portfolio. That correlation spikes when equities collapse, as it does for all risk assets. And that, in my view, as a risk manager, that's when correlation matters. You care about it when everything's collapsing. So it is a risk asset. It is positively correlated to other risk assets, but less so. It's certainly less than one correlated to the S&P 500, and that means it's diversifying. So big picture, it's risky. It's a risk asset, but it's high EV. I believe it's still high EV, and it's relatively low correlation to equities make it an incredible portfolio diversifier. So 2017 starts to play out, Bitcoin starts moving. And what was the key factor that led you to leave to start Block Tower? I felt this incredible sense of urgency that I had more conviction than I'd ever had in any trade that we were in the midst of a parabolic run. It just felt like it's happening. This is crossing the chasm. This is going from niche toy to mainstream. I was very confident that we were going to be getting uh, in 2017 something like 10x price appreciation. And so I felt this immense sense of urgency to capture that in some way. To me, it was like a clear opportunity of a lifetime. I'd spent hundreds of hours researching it. I felt like I had a deeper understanding of it than certainly most people in the world and most financial professionals. But it's not that often in life that you see an opportunity that large. And so I thought I have to seize this. I explored a little bit. Could I do that within the endowment world? pretty clear that the answer to that was no. Even if I could convince you Chicago to make a small allocation, it would have been a small allocation. And it would have been spending a year getting them to put maybe $50 million to test the waters. That wouldn't have moved the needle to the degree I wanted to. So I was surveying the landscape on behalf of UChicago. I literally talked to every crypto fund I could find on UChicago's behalf. And there were like four that were investable at all. And by investable, I mean in the legal sense that actually had a hedge fund structure. And then talking to them, it was generally one or two people in an apartment. These were very early stage funds, generally run by engineers or young kids without really any pedigree. And I say that not to knock these people. You can have brilliant investors in cryptocurrency without a pedigree, but I knew that I, I wasn't going to be able to get UChicago to invest. This was not the team I could pitch to the UChicago board for their first ever crypto investment. So it was really clear there was this blue ocean opportunity to launch a institutional professional crypto investment firm that would give investors peace of mind, that would give them a package they were familiar with where I could talk alpha and beta and risk management and institutional custody and all of those things. So let's talk about alpha and beta. Beta, pretty clearly Bitcoin, maybe a little bit of Bitcoin and Ethereum. How do you think about the alpha opportunity of active management in this space? It's incredibly high. And that was part of my thesis looking at the space. It wasn't just the positive EV of the beta Bitcoin. It was also as a trader in a prior life, trading's hard now. Machine learning, algorithmic trading has eaten up a lot of the alpha that used to be discretionary. It's extremely competitive. Trading is just very, very competitive. Things that used to be incredibly easy to do now are eking out single-digit returns where there used to be triple-digit. So it's hard because it's competitive. It's hard because algos are in it. Lots of capital is in it. It's hard because there aren't barriers to entry. So in crypto, it's only barriers to entry. Everything is hard about crypto. You have the regulatory uncertainty around certain things. You have lack of trading software, lack of operational tools. You don't have accounting software. You don't have back office equipment. You don't have a Bloomberg terminal. All the things that you take for granted in the traditional world, custody, reporting, tax filing, like everything, none of that existed in 2017 in the cryptocurrency world. The best you could do as a back office was a spreadsheet. There were some basic, basic software packages that would capture a small fraction of assets and exchanges, but those ultimately had to feed into a spreadsheet if you were doing any diverse styles of trading. So all of that was opportunity. I saw that guys like Two Sigma and Citadel and Rentec and the discretionary trading houses, none of them were in crypto for good reasons. It was too hard. It's also, it was extremely hard to trade institutionally because you couldn't permission individual traders. So this is an important point. When I worked at trading shops or SIG, SIG might give me the ability to trade $100 million of nat gas futures, but I couldn't steal it, right? There was no risk of me transferring $100 million to my own account. SIG had all sorts of controls in place that they could trust would prevent a trader from walking away with the assets. A trader at Rentec can't transfer $100 million of Microsoft stock to their own brokerage account and get away with it. Whereas in cryptocurrency, those controls didn't really exist. They didn't exist at the exchange level. You didn't have trading software that allowed for permissioning. You didn't have prime brokerage and clearing firms that would enable those kind of risk controls. So you could as an individual trade crypto, but it was extremely hard to do it as an institution. You basically had to be trusting everyone on your trading team to not walk away with the assets. So all those obstacles, all those pain points is opportunity. The fact that you had almost no professionals doing it full time meant that the alpha was incredibly available 
And I'll give a few examples of very simple trades, even arbitrage. So when we launched Block Tower, we had no intention of doing arbitrage because I just thought there's other people who can do it better than us. But in late 2017, we made a few million bucks manually arbitraging between US-based regulated exchanges. And the way that happened was I just had Coinbase and Gemini up on my screens and I was looking to see where is Bitcoin cheaper. And it's like, whoa, there's a $400 discrepancy in the Bitcoin price between two US regulated exchanges. I don't know why that is, but I might as well take advantage of it. And the reason that existed, you already had some firms like DRW, a big Chicago-based trading firm that has a crypto subsidiary called Cumberland doing this algorithmically. But the amount of capital ballooned so quickly during the bull run that it overwhelmed existing capital allocations to arbitrage it away. However much money DRW had in that capital account arbitraging it, it wasn't enough. And so I was picking up the leftovers. Today, basic arbitrage among zero counterparty risk exchanges or low counterparty risk at least mostly doesn't exist. It gets arbitraged away by guys like DRW, but everything else is there. So catalyst-driven trading, fundamental analysis, options are wildly mispriced. So when you're seeing all these dynamics, you're seeing these inefficiencies, you're seeing the challenges and how difficult it is to get started, how did you get a fund started amidst all of those challenges? So let me say a lot of this has become easier in the last four or five years, but going back to 2017, we were certainly more a startup than anything else. We very much wanted to be Citadel. We wanted to be institutional, wanted to build a very professional platform. The reality is the day we launched, back office was me with a spreadsheet because that was really all you could do. And our investors understood that. They viewed this space very much from a VC mindset. They viewed us from a VC mindset. The investor base kind of got it. that They were taking a lot of risk, operational risk with us, risk in crypto, but they were hoping for that 10 to 50x return, which makes the risk worth it. You're not going to take that level of operational risk to earn 4% a year, but to earn hundreds of percent a year certainly could make sense. So we, like any startup, solve problems as we went. And everything had an entrepreneurial angle where you have a problem, you figure out ways to solve it. You figure out ways to create duct tape solutions as best you can. And you recognize that some things are going to be duct taped. And then over time, as the industry is professionalized and produced better tooling, we make use of that. Every couple months, we're adding some new third-party service or third-party tool. We've also built more things in-house. We've expanded our team and professionalized. So it's a process of growing alongside the industry. Over the last couple of years, what strategy or strategies did you pursue? I've always really valued the ability to be opportunistic. I think in traditional markets, I, along with most people value specialization. When I was at UChicago, if someone pitched us on being a global real estate fund, it was almost not credible because, wait, you're really going to tell me you're the world's best real estate investor in every locale? How? Unless you have a team of half a million people, how do you know the whole world's local real estate? So we always loved at UChicago hearing pitches from someone who only does Southern LA commercial real estate. Because I believe you got a team of four guys, I believe you can be the best in the world at that 20 block radius. In crypto, I believed very strongly in 2017 that specialization did not make sense because it was a tiny industry with a small number of assets, a small number of key players, a small number of key developers and key technologies. And if you had expertise in those things, it didn't make sense to segment, for example, early from late stage, because the difference often between early and late stage was one year. And so my view was you can't be a late stage crypto investor without having an eye on the upcoming stuff, because that's the stuff that's going to be competing with your assets in six months. And you can't be an early stage investor without the really understanding the incumbents. So I felt basically the same set of skills and relationships and tools were applicable across the board. And the ability to be opportunistic and not be handcuffed to a mandate was very important because, for example, if you were an ICO investor in early 2017, you did incredibly well. If you were an ICO investor in late 2017, there was not a single good investment to put your money in. Let's say investors gave me $100 million and said, Ari, we want you to invest in ICOs. Early 2018, it would have been a really bad conflict of interest because the right answer was we shouldn't invest in ICOs for the next two years. But I would have had 100 million burning a hole in my pocket. In my mandate, I'm told by investors, we want you to be allocating ICOs. So being opportunistic and saying, okay, ICOs are clearly extremely frothy. We expect a 90% plus correction in them. Why don't we look elsewhere? Why don't we look at absolute return strategies? Why don't we look at option strategies? Why don't we look at catalyst driven? Maybe we're playing them from the long side, but we're doing it as much shorter term bets where they can work out even if we're in a secular bear market. So we've generally pursued a very broad range of strategies. We trade options. We do catalyst driven trading, event driven and bottom-up fundamental analysis, top-down macro. An example of a trade last year was when 
we were in the start of COVID, correlations between Bitcoin and S&P were gradually increasing. And there was a period where the crypto world said, correlations between Bitcoin and S&P should be zero. Who cares that equities are down 20%? Bitcoin doesn't care about COVID. Maybe it even benefits from it. And we were strongly convicted that that's nonsense, that Bitcoin is a risk asset. And while it might not be correlated one-to-one on a 5% S&P move, if S&P falls enough, Bitcoin's going to catch up to the downside because that's wealth destruction. If you have a global recession, just all risk assets get hurt for a long list of reasons that are separate from their fundamental correlation. You can put it in Keynesian animal spirits kind of terms that people are not going to be speculating on Bitcoin when they're losing their jobs and when they're worried about all their other assets just fell 50%. We don't trade macro here. We don't try to predict where S&P or treasuries are going because my view is that's a full-time job. There aren't many people in the world who can do it well. With that said, we're very willing to look at macro and say, where should Bitcoin be relative to that? Can we price macro into Bitcoin smarter than other market participants? And last year, that was definitely an area where we were able to have the edge, interpreting the macro climate and macro movements and saying, where should Bitcoin be in light of that? So that's a bit of an outlier. It's not that often we do those kind of bets, but it's an example of the breadth that we can look at. As the ecosystem has evolved, where do you find inefficiencies today? Frankly, almost everywhere outside of simple arbitrage. Bitcoin trading is, like in any asset class, large caps tend to be more efficient than small caps. That's definitely true in crypto. Bitcoin, you do have machine learning algos from guys like Two Sigma and Susquehanna pointed at it. So if you're just trying to do simple quant, looking only at Bitcoin and price data, traditional quant, where you look at basically volume and price as your two indicators, that is very competitive and very tough. But for example, not that many people do that and throw in the on-chain indicators. Amazing thing about cryptocurrency is that we have these whole new types of data that traditional quant has never had. And traditional quant firms have no idea how to make use of it. So the idea that we can see in real time every single Bitcoin transaction that's happening is incredible. It's an incredible wealth of data. And so anything that uses on-chain data is still inefficient today. I think on the fundamental side, this is such a fast-moving industry. We feel like we're barely keeping up with 10% of what's happening in the space. And we do this 18 hours a day with a team of six connected with everyone who matters in the industry. And so the way I think about markets as efficient is they're efficient if people like us make them efficient. They're efficient if professionals with sufficient capital and expertise and time can price them correctly. But I know we're not pricing the stuff correctly because as much as we can do, we're generally making investment decisions with a very superficial understanding just because of how fast the space is growing and innovating. The level of expertise, the level of diligence that we can do on any individual asset is so minimal. And it's not like we could focus on a smaller list of assets, but then you're missing key pieces of understanding them. Can you really understand Ethereum if you don't understand the long tail of assets being built on it and driving its usage? So the reality is almost everything is still wildly inefficient. I would sum it up in this one sentence. I think efficiency is a function of the ratio of professional capital to non-professional. And professional, I mean people full-time evaluating the space. And the professional capital in cryptocurrency probably controls less than 3% of the assets, which is the lowest ratio of any major asset class. Walk me through like an example of an analysis you would do on one of the positions that you own. It very much depends on what our thesis is, the kind of analysis that we're doing. So some assets, I'll give you an example. As a trader, I have no aversion to trading Dogecoin. So if Elon Musk tweets something bullish about Dogecoin, and I think there's going to be a momentum effect, I think retail is going to be buying it for the next 24 hours, I'll buy it ahead of them, and then I'll sell to retail. And I don't need to analyze Dogecoin at all to do that. It's a pure financial asset trade. And I'm generally sizing that quite small where I'm not really, I don't have to think about existential risk. It's 2% of AUM, it's a trade. And my only thinking is, okay, I'm betting 2% of AUM. I think it's going to rally 50% of the next 24 hours. If I'm wrong, I understand the worst case is this could go to zero. That's kind of it. When we're buying and holding an asset over a six month to two year time frame, there it's very different. There we are evaluating it from very much like a VC mindset in, say, a Series A or Series B often, where we're evaluating the team, we're looking at the technology, we're looking at the UX, the target customer base, the usage, and the competitors. And it does depend on the type of asset. Uniswap's a great example here. Uniswap, you can actually value in a very equity-like way based on cash flows, because Uniswap actually collects a 30 basis point fee on all transactions, and it's currently doing more than a billion dollars a day in transactions. So there's real cash flow there. Those cash flows are currently being paid out to liquidity providers, 
but the token holders have the right, like equity holders, to vote about where the profits go. So the analogy here is right now, Uniswap is kind of like Amazon, meaning they're choosing not to be profitable. They're reinvesting all of their income into growth. At some point, though, the equity holders can say, we want to pay ourselves juicy dividends. We want to cut costs. We want to run costs at minimal necessary level, but not reinvest in growth. And we want to take those cash flows. And as any equity investor has to think about, how much cash can you take out of a company without cratering it? Could Amazon have pulled a lot of their operating profit out as cash flow? What would that have done? Would that have created room for competitors? So we do the same kind of competitive analysis on Uniswap and say, how much of that 30 basis points could token holders pull out? You need to be incentivizing liquidity providers. Well, how much? With 10 basis points, 20? So there's a a fundamental analysis there. And then similar in equities, we're generally not valuing things on an absolute basis, but much more a relative one. So we'll say, okay, Uniswap, we can come up with this cash flow model. But at the end of the day, we recognize that there's no real sense of where a fair multiple is. And we're not thinking on a 10, 20 year horizon of holding this thing and receiving cash. So we really, at the end of the day, want to compare it with comparables in the industry. What up and coming competitors, what existing competitors are competing and what are the relative valuations of those? And then we always think from a trading mindset as well, even on fundamental analysis, which is supply and demand. Is this a theme that is going to excite the crypto world and institutional investors? Can people buy the thing? So, for example, if an asset isn't listed on Coinbase or Binance or any of the big exchanges, the inflows are limited. So the analogy there is if a stock is a part of the S&P 500, it's much easier for it to be a $100 billion asset. We just got a Canadian Bitcoin ETF. Well, why is there a difference between that and a U.S. Bitcoin ETF? There's a difference because not all U.S. investors can easily access the Canadian one. We live in a a world of fragmented liquidity, and that's true in both crypto and traditional. So as an example of a bet that we have on right now, we've created baskets based entirely on accessibility. So we have a basket of Coinbase coins, a basket of Binance coins, a basket of Korean and Japanese retail coins, where it's the assets that are easiest for a new participant to crypto. Someone who creates a crypto exchange account for the first time, what can they buy and what are they likely to buy? And that angle of supply and demand drives asset prices as much as anything. When you put all this together, what does the structure of your portfolio look like? We structure a portfolio that is trying to optimize between risk and reward in kind of a steady state. And then we're trading actively around that. I'll use today as the example. So today, I believe we're in a bull market. I think we're in something like the bottom of the seventh inning measured from the bottom of the bear market. So Bitcoin hit its lows of a little over $3,000 December 2018. We've now gone from just over $3,000 to we hit a high of 58500 Retail started getting into this market only this year in 2021. So I think we still have a ways to go. We're still seeing institutional spread. We're still seeing retail come in. I think we have substantial appreciation ahead of us. But we are starting to get into that last third of the bull run. So given that high-level macro view, that kind of market cycle framework, I want to be playing things from the bullish side, aggressively from the bullish side. I want to be giving my portfolio asymmetry, upside skew. You can think of it like I want my portfolio to look a little bit like a call. And what I mean by that is if I'm right on where we are in the market cycle, I expect all coins to outperform Bitcoin over the remainder of the market. With that said, all coins are riskier than Bitcoin. And if I'm wrong and Bitcoin, let's say the top's in and Bitcoin's going to correct 70 to 80%, well, all coins will probably collect 95% like they usually do. So I can't just solve for EV. I have to solve across these probabilities and accept with humility that I may not be perfectly right. But with all that said, currently our portfolio is altcoin dominated. We manage risk more with cash. It's a little bit like a barbell strategy with, say, equities and bonds, where you could say, well, corporate bonds are safer than equities, but you can assemble a portfolio that's equally safe with equities and cash. And that equally safe portfolio might have a higher expected return than a corporate bond portfolio. So that's the kind of thinking we do. We basically say, would I rather be 100% Bitcoin now or, say, 70% alts, 30% cash? And maybe I think those are of comparable risk and one or the other may be higher EV. And we often rotate aggressively. So... One thing that we're doing very aggressively at the stage of the bull market is trying to anticipate key themes and narratives. These will typically be one to three months long. So we say to ourselves, as an example, in October and November of last year, the narrative was institutional money is flowing to Bitcoin. Retail is not really in yet. Bitcoin's where it's at. No one cares about anything other than Bitcoin. And our portfolio reflected that. We were very Bitcoin heavy. As we headed into the end of the year, we said, once Bitcoin makes a new all-time high, 
that is the trigger that starts bringing in retail. Because when Bitcoin makes a new all-time high, that triggers media coverage. From then, every single rally, every new $100 is a new all-time high. It's another Bloomberg headline. It's another CNBC headline. And suddenly, everyone who's ever bought Bitcoin is in profit. And that attention brings in retail. The wealth created by Bitcoin flows down the risk curve. Bitcoin going from 3000 to 30000 in a year, that generates wealth. That wealth looks for its next 10x and flows down the risk curve into riskier, newer assets. And so we re-rotated aggressively trying to anticipate that into altcoins. And we were trying to bet on the altcoins that we thought would be the first thematic winners, things like DeFi. So across the assets you own, there's Bitcoin, Ethereum, you mentioned DeFi. There's a couple other areas that you could participate in. How do you map out the landscape in what your investable opportunity set is? Fairly simple in the sense that it's basically anything cryptocurrency related at the highest level. And the main limitation is liquidity. And from two angles, liquidity in terms of what can we trade into and out of, in that we have non-trivial assets. If something's a 3 million market cap, it's not really investable for us. And then secondly, liquidity from a liquid versus illiquid perspective is in private's investment. We're currently much more focused on the liquid side of things. And so when we invest in illiquid assets and we do occasionally do equity, generally we're looking for things that are going to have liquidity in one to two years. And so those are usually early stage projects that expect to list a token because tokens can provide liquidity typically faster than equity. So those are really our only two constraints. Beyond that, we look at anything cryptocurrency related and it's still a small world in the sense that everything touches on everything. And as an example, NFT projects, non-fungible tokens like digital art, digital collectibles, they're often storing the actual artwork on IPFS, which is a decentralized file storage system that has Filecoin associated with it. So you have this interaction between decentralized file storage, which is kind of its own sector, digital art, its own sector, and the NFT space, most of it sits on top of Ethereum and a competitor called Floatedeg. Well, that's the layer one space. And then within the layer ones, because of that NFT activity, it's been driving up gas fees. It's been driving up the cost of transacting because it's been clogging the network. Well, that leads us into another sector, layer twos, which aim to help scaling. So each of these sectors ends up influenced basically without NFTs and without DeFi, there's no need for scaling and scaling solutions. So we've made bets on scaling solutions because we anticipated they would be needed because we were so bullish on gaming and NFTs. So we've talked some on this series about the macro case, about Bitcoin, about some of the DeFi protocol and some of the other areas. What are your favorite investment areas as you're looking out over the next few years? Here I'm boring with consensus. And by the way, this is a five-year-old view of mine. When I first got into crypto, the only use cases I saw as viable in the next five years were Bitcoin is digital gold store of value. Decentralized finance, which in its simplest form just means decentralized exchanges, are very simple use case, which now that things like Robinhood are in the news, we see demand for it, right? Retail is extremely upset at these walled gardens that tell them what they can trade and when and how they have to. But even putting all that aside, just the ability to transact 24-7 globally. But if you think about modern exchange infrastructure, it's really incredibly antiquated. We have the exact same equity listed on multiple exchanges, and they're non-fungible. You can have persistent price disparities between the equity of the same company, depending on where in the world it's being traded. That's crazy. The law of one price doesn't apply in modern markets because we have this fragmented liquidity. So the idea of having true global instant liquidity is a huge win. So that's DeFi, and that's now happening at scale. And now we're building all sorts of more complex primitives, things like lending. So collateralized lending is already here at scale uncollateralized lending is a much harder problem than you need to get into things like credit scoring and reputation risk. And that's an experimental phase right now. So one was digital gold store value, DeFi, NFTs, meaning digital art and digital collectibles. That is in full-on parabolic mode. It's really incredible to witness what's happening now. You have today all of the big IP owners racing to get involved because of the success of MBA Top Shot. So MBA partnered with Dapper Labs. I don't know when the partnership was inked, but I'm going to guess maybe a year, year and a half ago. They rolled out MBA Top Shot, which are digital MBA collectibles, something like five months ago now, and they've done more than $100 million of sales. So I think my guess is that when the MBA signed that contract, they thought, okay, this is a fun little side project. Maybe it'll bring in a few million bucks. And it's a leading source of revenue for the league now, which is insane. And this is just the start. The NBA didn't even market this. This was all organic growth. And frankly, I don't mean this at all as a criticism. Dapper Labs has been incredible. But 
people aren't used to buying NFTs. You think about this is appealing to a market that is just getting their feet wet and getting comfortable with the idea of a digital sports collectible. The fact they've done $100 million of revenue right off the bat is just incredible. So all the other leagues, NHL, NFL, soccer globally, and then all the other IP content owners, Disney, everyone wants to get a piece of this. So I think over the next three years, we're going to see the NFT space grow probably 100x in size. The challenge as an investor is that's horizontal growth. It's not that any specific asset is going to go up 100x in size. It's that new assets will be launched. So as an investor, something I've spent a huge amount of time thinking about this, I've been bullish on this for five years. I can tell you as an investor, I've actually allocated very little to it. And the problem is I feel a little bit like being really, like I'm really bullish on social media in 1992. And it's like, there's nothing to invest in yet. And then maybe, maybe it's 1996 and you see Friendster, but you think Friendster is crap. And you say, I'm really bullish on the thesis, but I don't see the winners yet. How do I invest in this? And then even a little bit later on, you do have a question of what's going to accrue the value or the platforms. So now we have maybe a dozen competing NFT platforms for digital art. These are the platforms that are aiming to be the Ebays, the Christie's, the Sotheby's, the dealers of art. And the problem I have is if NFTs grow 1,000x, do those platforms grow 1,000x? Do they capture the value? Classic question of competitive modeling. And I don't think so. I think they do well. I think their profit margins are pretty small because I think there's going to be fierce competition driving profit margins down. So it's not an easy space to be an investor. With that said, I think it's an incredibly exciting one, and you're going to have a huge number of successful startups in that space. Gaming as well, we're just starting to see grow parabolically, just at the, we're probably a little bit too early for that, and that there's only a few crypto games getting any traction. But I think I'm very confident that over the next five years, basically NFTs already exist in games at a huge scale. Games like World of Warcraft sell billions of dollars a year of gaming collectibles within the game. Those are not NFTs because they exist only within a walled garden. They're not decentralized. They're not permissionless. But what if they were? So imagine you're a World of Warcraft gamer and you've spent $20,000 on in-game purchases and you know that the company behind the game can delete those from your account at any moment. That if that game falls out of favor, those items are worthless. How much more would you be willing to spend if you could actually take the item outside of the game? This is its own whole topic. And there's whenever I say that, people are like, Ari, but why would Blizzard allow that? This is a whole discussion. But that is going to be a huge growth area. It's a short list, but my list really hasn't changed that much in five years. Those are still the areas that are promising, I think, over the next three to five years. And what do you see as the major risks? I literally spend more than half my time thinking about the risk side of things because I'm so confident in the beta and in the short-term alpha that literally something I say to my team constantly is rule number one, two, and three are don't blow up. Basically, if we can stay in the game and maintain our capital and we shouldn't care at all about missed opportunities because this is an industry and a market that generate amazing opportunities every couple months. If we miss one theme, forget it. Don't chase it. Don't sweat it. So I think about this a lot. Okay, now let me give you the real answer. Let me separate two types of risks. There's what I think of as market risks, where a catalyst could cause a sharp market sell-off, but it's temporary in nature. So we think of those risks from the trading side. So most regulatory risks are trading risks for us in the sense that, for example, BitMEX, which had the largest trading volume for Bitcoin in the world, they had 70% of all volume about a year ago, their principles were indicted by the U.S. government. And that could have been a calamitous thing for crypto markets. Bitcoin sold off something like 6% on the news. It made new local highs a few days later. That was an incredible bullish sign. Basically, this bull market was kicked off by the worst news many people could imagine happening, which was BitMEX getting indicted, OKX, the second largest exchange, they had one of their principals arrested by China. And yet both events caused very small, quick sell-offs, but were not existentially important. I think there is regulation that would be a deeper market impact. For example, if the U.S. government, let's say FinCEN and the U.S. Treasury imposed rules that made it much, much harder for a crypto investment firm like us or exchanges or broker dealers or custodians to operate in the U.S., they made it so hard that a lot of U.S. entities would shut down. And let's say Europe followed suit. Basically, it's not illegal to own Bitcoin, but it's a, it's a huge pain in the butt. And let's say, for example, they made taxes on Bitcoin gains and crypto gains double normal gains. Just they threw a lot of stuff that made it far less attractive to be in this industry. I could imagine a suite of proposals where that might cause a 70% sell-off. That is a market risk. That's obviously a 70% sell-off is huge. We would certainly hope to 
profit from that or at least avoid losses on that, it's not really an existential risk. It wouldn't end the industry. It wouldn't even necessarily end the bull run, as crazy as that sounds. There's the market risk like that. The existential risks are the ones that could basically shut down the industry for years. And the highest on my list there is game theory risk for Bitcoin's proof of work consensus. This is an extremely unpopular opinion in my industry, as you might imagine. Almost anyone in my industry doesn't want anyone talking about this. Not that it's a secret. It gets labeled as FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt is basically a rumor. But my view is the purpose of a consensus mechanism is to allow people to arrive at consensus, at agreement in a decentralized way without relying on a legal system or a military backstop. So the way all modern business works is you have legal contracts that are ultimately backstopped by the legal system of a country, which is backstopped by a military. And that has its limits. So we see this come up, for example, with commerce between US and China. Somewhat frequently, there'll be a dispute between a US and Chinese company and US company will sue a Chinese company for ripping off IP. And everyone kind of knows that we can't really trust that the Chinese courts will enforce the IP contract. There is a question about the enforceability of these contracts cross-border. So cryptocurrency replaces the legal system in the military with code, and not just code, but incentives. So proof of work is Bitcoin's consensus mechanism, and it relies on a bunch of people around the world hashing numbers. It's Nakamoto consensus is the term where every node accepts the longest chain. Every consensus mechanism has vulnerabilities. Proof of work has a long list of known vulnerabilities that are attack vectors. It's intensely debated how serious those attack vectors are, what is the cost of exploiting them, who has incentives to exploit them. My view is that it's very plausible that it may be that state-level actors or even pure economic actors have an incentive to attempt to exploit it. And then the question is, what is the response? So if, for example, there was a block reorganization attack on Bitcoin by a state actor, what would the Bitcoin stakeholders do in response? And there's a number of responses they have, and it ends up being a very complex question. So my view is this is an existential risk. I can imagine a scenario in my head, I put it at maybe 10% over the next five years, that there is a successful attack on Bitcoin that effectively renders the network temporarily unusable, but unusable in a way where we don't know when the next attack will be. So even if it's unusable for three days, if you know that attack can basically be repeated at any time, well, the network is certainly much less valuable. When you talk to your old colleagues at Chicago and other institutions, where have they evolved in their participation and thinking over the last couple of years? I'm not a great authority on the current state of UChicago. I don't want to represent myself as anything in that. What I can say generally about the endowment world is most of the top 10 endowments have invested in crypto funds. It's been reported, but I have no firsthand knowledge of this, that three of the largest endowments have directly bought Bitcoin. I think the cat's out of the bag in the sense that they all now feel comfortable in crypto funds. Whether I think it's an extra leap to feel comfortable with direct ownership, but my guess is that in another year, that similarly will feel not like a terribly difficult allocation decision operationally. In other words, do you want exposure to Bitcoin or not is an investment question. Are you able as an endowment to invest and meet your fiduciary obligations? That's an operational question. And I think the operational question is solved for funds, close to solved for direct buying. So one last question before we turn to a couple of closing questions, which is if we look out five years from now, what do you think the institutional landscape looks like in this ecosystem? It's an interesting question. I think we've had recently people like JP Morgan say they think that in five years, Bitcoin will be integrated into the global financial system, which is kind of an incredible statement coming from where we were a few years ago. Right now, it's certainly not. I'd say the thing that the industry is racing to build right now that's the biggest pain point is a lack of prime brokerage. And a lot of the trading opportunities arise from that. So for example, basis, you can capture CME futures, often trade at a 20% annualized premium to spot Bitcoin. That's an arbitrage. Presumably, we think the CME has no counterparty risk, so it's an arbitrage. Well, why is it that high? The reason is just capital requirements. Because you can't collateralize a short futures position with Bitcoin, you need to use cash. It's an extremely capital inefficient trade. Now, if you could collateralize that futures position with Bitcoin, it would immediately be arbitraged away. It's as much an arbitrage as almost anything in finance. So basically, there's counterparty risk in almost everything you do in the crypto world. There's smart contract and engineering risk in almost everything we do. That is a huge pain point. What I expect it to look like is all of the traditional prime brokerage bells and whistles and features will exist for crypto, and we'll have the start of crypto native prime brokerage. And what I mean by that is 
The same way in the beginning, we had things like Coinbase, which were centralized exchanges for Bitcoin trading. Something like seven years later, we got decentralized exchanges. The decentralized version of everything is much, much harder and less efficient. Bitcoin itself took many, many decades after we had electronic money to build. So eventually we'll have crypto native prime brokerage, but I think that'll probably be five years after we have traditional prime brokerage applied to crypto. All right, Ari, I want to leave a little bit of time to turn to a couple of fun closing questions. What is your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? As a founder and investor in 24-7 markets, I have a very boring life since launching Block Tower. I love reading fiction. It's an escape for me, reading about anything, whether it's historical fiction. I feel like I learn about a great deal of the world and history that way, science fiction. I actually say the Three Body Problem trilogy by Cixin Liu is an incredible work of science fiction that often gets cited in both cryptocurrency and geopolitics today. And reading it, I actually found a lot of the ideas in the sci-fi novel directly applicable to game theory exploits and cryptocurrency to almost a weird degree. And I wasn't the only one to notice this. There's an essay called Ethereum is a Dark Forest, and it draws this direct analogy between smart contracts and Ethereum and the work of that sci-fi, and it's really well done. So I'd say reading fiction. What's your most important daily habit? Meditating. And it's one that I'm a bit hit or miss with and trying to be more consistent at. But I think as a trader of a 24-7 market, you've constantly high adrenaline and cortisol, and it's both very unhealthy. And at some point, your decision-making becomes worse. It degrades because you're at this constant fight or flight kind of reaction. And this is a hyper-volatile market where we need to feel that intensity because, let me put it this way, it's extremely challenging to zoom out and view the big picture while also paying sufficient attention to these day-by-day -day massive price swings and game theory exploits and smart contract bugs. Both are important. You can't ignore the short term, but balancing those two is incredibly difficult and meditation is a helpful way to do it. What's your favorite reading in this ecosystem? Crypto Twitter is the best aggregator, which is to say, if you follow the right 50 people on Twitter, anytime a good article is put out, a good anything, it ends up getting posted there. Twitter is the equivalent of Bloomberg for a lot of crypto traders. And I'll actually say this, we subscribe to almost a dozen crypto services at this point that do news analysis, alerts, data. The first thing, if I want to make sure I'm up to date on anything really important, I literally go to Twitter because I know that if anything is really important, somewhat it's going to be talked about and it's going to be there before it's on any particular aggregator. What's your biggest pet peeve? In life or in crypto? <laughs> your call. I'll say, and actually this might be the same. So a challenge for the cryptocurrency world is the UX is still terrible. And the thing I'll highlight is the idea that if I want to send money to you right now, if I want to send you Bitcoin, you'll probably give me a Bitcoin public address. And I will then copy and paste that and send Bitcoin to it. The idea that we're copying and pasting this arcane long string of alphanumerics to represent a million or $10 million transfer is insane. It's so error prone. It feels awkward. It's terrible. I had hoped four years ago, I thought that by this point, we would have abstracted it. It's very easy to abstract in a technological sense. It's just a UX problem. And different projects have abstracted it. The problem is there's no consensus in the industry. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I've learned a huge amount from my parents and look up to both of them. One line from my father that I'll highlight, a lot of life is timing and a lot of the reason Block Tower is where it is today is because Matthew and I acted with alacrity when we did. My father in early 2017, I was talk I had been talking about cryptocurrency for a couple of years. He was a good sounding board. He was interested, didn't really have an opinion on it, but was just interested. And in early 2017, I started talking to him about how do I make this a career? And I think it was maybe in February when I said, you know, I think I could do this and start building a track record and maybe this. And at one point he turned to me and said, what are you waiting for? If you're this convicted and this passionate about it and you want to make this your career, what are you waiting for? And that one line, basically that day, I started making concrete plans to leave you Chicago and do something. I think my parents are pretty typical parents in the sense that they're a little bit risk averse when it comes to me at least. But hearing that from them, hearing that level of support and that something my father's always drilled into me is always keep your options open. I'd say he's a little bit on the conservative side and risk-taking just in the sense of maintaining optionality. But then he's always been someone who, when he saw an opportunity, that's what the optionality is there for. That's what you're saving up for. That's what you're positioning yourself for. You have to seize it. Otherwise, what have you been waiting for? So it was that kind of a moment. And getting that affirmation from someone who I respect and whose opinion I respect, and if anything, a little bit from the conservative side, was a good kick in the butt to actually get moving. 
All right. One more before I ask you about mistakes for our premium members. What life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? I don't know if it's exactly a life lesson, but I knew when launching Block Tower that I was terrible on the management and HR side of running a business. I didn't desire to be an entrepreneur. I knew those were both weaknesses and things I didn't particularly enjoy. So I didn't learn anything new on that. What I will say, though, is I wish I had embraced them earlier in life. Basically, as an entrepreneur now, when I launched Block Tower with Matthew, and for those listening, Matthew's my co-founder, our CEO, I decided to embrace those things. I said, okay, this might not be natural to me. I might not be good at that. But I know that if I want to build a successful firm, I have to, frankly, suck it up and embrace these things. And if I view them as daily pain points, that's just not good. I need to embrace the pain and say, I'm going to get better at these things. I'm going to view this as a challenge and a learning experience. I wish I had done that earlier in life. I wish I had embraced the importance of the soft skills like sales and management and recruiting because those are so important to doing almost anything. Unless you're almost anything you want to do that's senior or ambitious eventually requires recruiting sales and management. It doesn't matter if you're running a firm, even if you're just managing a small team. And so those skill sets are so critical that I wish I had embraced them a decade earlier and come to the Block Tower experience with a lot more experience under my belt. Ari, thanks so much for taking the time. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those at their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.